Well, good morning, Village Church. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and I'm really grateful to be with you uh, this morning and opening up God's Word. We've been in the series, The Meaninglessness of Life, out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning, we're going to talk about the meaningless of work, meaninglessness of work in a wicked world. And it's a good topic because did you know that you will spend 30% of your life at work? Is that a pleasant thought this morning? You're going to spend 30% of your life at work. You will literally spend 25 to 30 years of your life working. Right now, some of you are like, I need to get on Indeed. I need a different job. I need to find something new. Like, you're going to spend 30% of your life at work. In the words of the teacher of Ecclesiastes, you're going to spend 30% of your life toiling. All right? There's a lot to life that he's addressing, but this theme of work comes up over and over again. Because work is such a big part of our life, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes, is looking at all of these different elements of life, and he's offering us wisdom beyond the wisdom that we ourselves might have in all these areas of life, and work being such a large area of life and of interest to us, he comes back to it over and over again because we are doing it over and over and over again. And so this morning we see the teacher not only talking about work, but he's sort of talking about the work environment. And there's a lot of, of talk today about the work environment, whether we work at the office or whether we work at home or whether we do some kind of hybrid model or what kind of ethics we use in the office or how we should actually arrange things in the office so that people know that they're, they're working with people that are kind of above them and below them or beside them. And there are all kinds of things when we talk about work environment. But this morning we're not talking about this on the micro scale of one of your companies or one of your organizations, right? We're talking about this on the macro scale of the world. The work environment in the world, this is a work environment that we all share together. This is the work environment that we all share together. And in this section of Ecclesiastes 3 and 4, the teacher offers us three observations about work and the world we live in. And then at the end, he offers us three potential responses. I think in hindsight, as Christians, there's a fourth that I'll share with you this morning. The first one we pick up in verse 16. Look at it with me. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The first observation I think he makes this morning is this, that we work in a world that is filled with wickedness. And I chose those words on purpose. We work in a world that is filled, that's filled with wickedness. This word wickedness means um, moral wrong or iniquity. It's sort of that sort of line in the sand. I know we have all heard the proverbial line in the sand, but iniquity is the idea that we know the line is there, we just choose to step over it anyway. We know what we're doing. There's all kinds of moral wrong in the world, and we know it, but we just keep on doing it. We continue to cross the line knowing that we're crossing the line. We're doing things that are not morally right toward God and toward other people, yet we just continue with it. Knowing that we're doing it, we're content just to continue with it over and over and over again. We live in a world that is morally corrupt. We know it, and we keep doing it. I thought, where does it start? In relationship to life and work, where does it start? I think it actually starts in the home. Like, there are people that woke up this morning with an absent and or abusive husband or father, but they still have to go to work. And they still have to go do their job and earn a living and go about all the tasks of life 
with the wickedness that's happening in their home. There are people that are constantly sinning against us. It could be neighbors or friends or even family, but we still have to go to work. There are selfish and scheming bosses that only want what's good for them, but we still have to go to work and go about the everyday ordinary things of life and the tasks that we all have. There are jealous and backstabbing coworkers, but we still have to go to work. There's wickedness that happens in the home and in the workplace, but we still go to work. Above it all, there are corrupt shareholders that own the companies that many of us work for, and they are manipulating stock prices and all kinds of things for their own benefit and not for yours, but you still have to go to work. And there are unfair systems and structures that exploit work and exploit people. But you and I are going to go back to work tomorrow morning. I'm working this morning. That was a pastor joke, supposed to laugh. There are subtly and overtly tyrannical governments that make policies and laws that govern our work to benefit them the most. And listen, like, I'm like, I consider myself like a patriotic, I love our country, but I said it on purpose, there are subtly and overtly tyrannical governments. It seems that every government is tyrannical in one way, shape, or form. Either subtly, you can't see it very well, or very obviously, you can see it very well, but they all manipulate their policies and laws in ways that benefit them the most, but we all still have to go to work. You might say, well, it has to be somewhere. <laughs> There has to be somewhere in the world, if, it's, if it can happen, wickedness can be present in our home and in our relationships and in our neighborhoods and in our office and with our employers and our employees and with our shareholders and with systems and structures and with the government itself that governs it all, there has to be somewhere we can go where wickedness is not found. And the teacher says, no. He says, in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. In this day and culture, people would say, well, at least we could go to the court system. At least we could go to the justice system. And there will be justice there. And he's saying, no, there's not. And in his time, in his place, and in his culture, the courts and the congregation, in a sense, the courts and the church, the people of God, and, and some of those religious systems and governing structures were kind of tied together in some ways. I think he's just repeating himself. He's probably just saying justice and wickedness, righteousness and wickedness, but it could be the courts, it could be in the midst of the congregation of God's people. Even in the places that we trust the most, the idea is we find wickedness and injustice. If you go to a court building, you'll see Lady Justice standing outside and and there'll be these sort of weights on the both sides, right? And Proverbs speaks to this idea that an unjust weight is an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to us, isn't it? When we see injustice and we know it, when there's, when there's unequal weights and balances, when it's not happening, when there's a two-tiered justice system for politicians and celebrities, but different for the common people, like, we all see that. We all know it should be weighted and balanced, and it's not. And some of you heard me mention the congregation or the church, and you've been involved in the life of the church, and you've seen a church scandal, or you've read something on the news, or you've heard a story, or you've seen something on Instagram, or someone posted a tweet, and you know what? Some of it is probably true. 
because the world is filled with people that theologians use a term to describe who are totally depraved, and, and the church is filled with people like that too. Total depravity is a term that theologians use to describe this idea that we're not as wicked as we could be. Isn't that hard to believe? Like when you think about all of the wickedness around the world today, isn't it hard to believe that we're not as wicked as we could be, but there is wickedness through sin that pervades all of our lives, every nook and cranny, every area of life, every place of culture, with us personally and with us collectively. I don't want to just pause for a moment and say, God sees this. And God knows this. He's not unaware. And the teacher sees it, and the teacher knows it. And he knows that the readers are going to be asking something like, then why doesn't God do something about it? I think that answer to that question in long form is for a different sermon. But, but he does address it here in short form. Like, for the first time, he touches this idea of wickedness, that God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. And he also bookends the book of Ecclesiastes with this idea, it is the last verse in the book. Verse 17 says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's time for every matter and for every work. And then at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, because he knows we're thinking this, he ends the book of Ecclesiastes with, for God will judge every deed into, bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Because God is both loving and just. And if God is loving, he has to be just, just because he has to judge sin and the wickedness that's in the world. And he has done that in one sense, which we'll talk about at the end of our time together this morning. And he will one day. And some of us are thinking, well, you know, it's comforting to know that one day God will judge the wickedness once and for all, but why does God allow it to continue today? Like, I'm going back to work on Monday into an environment that at least one of those descriptors that you mentioned, it's true about the environment that I'm going back to work in, like my actual organization or my actual company. And, and I can see how it, on a meta scale, like, we're all going back to that tomorrow when we go back to work. So... Why does God let it continue? The author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, he's really smart, really wise guy. He knows we're asking these questions. And so he gives an answer in part in verse 18 where he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. You know, I think too many people believe in this idea that people are inherently good. And that there are only a couple of bad apples that have sort of ruined it for everyone. But the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to see, because I believe God wants us to see, that wickedness is present in all of us. We all do things that are morally corrupt, and we know it, and we do it anyway. Whether it's a small scale or the large scale, it doesn't matter on God's scale. And that wickedness is not only pervasive in our own lives, but it's pervasive in the world. And the teacher wants to prove this to us. He wants to prove that it's so bad, in fact, that we're like animals. 
Like we don't even think about it. An animal doesn't think about what it does, it just does it. My nickname for my golden retriever is Walnut Brain, and there's a reason. I thought it might be a little levity, because his, his brain is the size of a walnut, so he does literally, so he does things instinctively. He doesn't think about it, and he is a golden retriever, so he is playful. There is a different idea at work here. Like, like a wolf or a predator that does not think about the consequences of its actions. It just does it. Apart from God, what the author is telling us is this is what we do instinctively. Now look, some of you are skeptical, and the, the author knows this. The teacher knows that we won't believe this easily. Like, we're going to need some convincing. And so he gives us a couple, of, a couple of proofs, two of them, in verses 19 to 21, where he says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all to dust will return. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. The two proofs he he gives us is that humans die, and humans go from dust to dust just like animals. Animals live, and animals die, and they breathe their last breath, and that's what humans do. Humans live, humans die, and they breathe their last breath, and they go down, they're buried, and we go from dust to dust just like animals do. And apart from the faith that we have in Christ as Christians, how would we know that there is life beyond death? I mean, he literally says, who could really know whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. I mean, I think when you go to a funeral or a memorial service, it just feels so comforting us to, to say like, well, he's there's up there or she's up there looking down on us. It's like, how do you prove that? Like, how do you know that, that it's any different than the animals? And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I mean, this is one of the, the big questions that drew, I think, a lot of us in. How would we know? Well, Jesus says there's a way that we would know. Well, if this is the world we live in, <laughs> and this is really as wicked as it is, then what's the point of our work? Like, why, why would we even go to work tomorrow? Well, the teacher gives us an initial, but not a complete response. This is not one of his three, but he gives us an initial response that he said before. This is just a general observation for now. Look at verse 22, where he says, So I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will have to happen after that? Like, how do you know what's going to happen after you're in the ground in a box? I think the teacher's trying to tell us that we should enjoy our work in the ways that we can, even in a wicked world. We should enjoy our work in the ways we can, even in a wicked world. I mean, all of us have to work for a living, right? Unless you're like a trust fund baby or something like that. If that's, would you raise your hand, trust fund babies? <laughs> Right now, oh, I hear. Okay, we got one. It's a joke, I know, but like, you're not going to raise your hand for that. No one likes you, right? No one likes you. Really, we're all envious of you, which the author will actually, no joking aside, get to in just a moment. But we're all going to have to go to work tomorrow and work for a living, so we may as well enjoy it, right? And this is part of God's common grace, that we get to enjoy the gifts and abilities that we have, and even the personalities that God's gifted us with. Like, that's true whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. Like, we get to enjoy those things, and we should. 
We get to enjoy the fruit of our work and the way that it provides for our family and the, the meals that we get to cook for them or buy for them or the vacations we get to take or the things that we get to provide on a daily basis to make their lives enjoyable and comfortable and joyful. Knowing that our work provides for our ability to give to others and to other things. What we actually earn money and then we get to use it to, to serve and bless and, and give to other people. That's a joyful thing. Knowing that our work can help other people to thrive like that their lives can thrive and flourish in some way because of the work we're doing. That's a very joyful thing. Or to know that we can do work that can thwart all the evil in the world. And that's a very good and joyful thing. We work in a world filled with wickedness. But there's another description the teacher gives us of the kind of work environment that we have, and we find it in the beginning of chapter 4. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, that they had no comfort, no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there it is a third time, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are alive. Did you catch that? Catch this. But better both is he who has not yet been born, or has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun, the person that has not yet been born. The second observation he makes about our work environment is that we work in a world that's filled with oppression. And those words, again, are chosen on purpose. That it is filled with oppression. Not only do we work in a world that's filled with wickedness, but it works itself out in oppression, which literally means extortion. It works out in ways that we end up extorting one another. The word Oppression here literally means extortion or tyranny, like denying people their rights so that it benefits us, so that, so that it profits us. And we made this, you know, this wonderful list earlier, right, of like absent or abusive fathers. And, and, and there are ways that, that people in places of authority, even in homes, they misuse their authority to extort other people for their own benefit or profit or a selfish or scheming boss, or a jealous or backstabbing coworker, or corrupt shareholders, or these unfair systems and structures, or governments that create them and govern them for their own benefit to extort other people and to give themselves benefit or profit, or in the words of the teacher, gain. And if you watch the news on any given week, you can see how this happens around the world. We don't share their faith, but there's no reason that the Uyghur population in China should be suffering the way that they are. There's no reason that children around the world should be abused when they do their work. There's no reason why in places around the world that people should not get paid for their work. There's no reason why females should be oppressed from expressing themselves or going to work in other cultures or mutilated in ways that, that allows them never to do anything else but one thing. I mean, th these, are, these are atrocities that happen all over the world that people are oppressed and they're extorted and they're robbed from and their rights are taken away. And the teacher tells us that because of all this, <laughs> It's maybe kind of better to not be born sometimes, you know? This is not an interesting thought. It's so bad. Well, the teacher's painting a very bleak picture, isn't he? About the kind of work that we, kind of world that we live in. 
but he continues and he, he does one last major brushstroke. And aren't you glad there's just one more? <laughs> it's in verse 4, look at it, where he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. His third observation is simple, is that we work in a world that's filled with envy. We work in a world that's filled with wickedness and with oppression and with envy. And it's this way because all the work we're doing outside of the grace of God and the mercy of God is done out of envy and envying one another. We want more than each other has. And in a sense, I believe he's saying that this is what is behind the wickedness and the oppression in the world, is that the envy of one another is so great, it can even lead us to acts of oppression and acts of wickedness and acts of violence, because we want it all. We want more than anyone. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And even at the expense of someone else, and the teacher tells us that this is useless. He says it's vanity and striving after the wind because there will always be someone who has more. Okay. Wickedness, oppression, envy. Have fun at work tomorrow, okay? Let's pray. book of Ecclesiastes is wonderful because it kind of brings us to the end of ourselves, right? I mean, outside of the grace of God, outside of the, the common grace of God, and definitely outside of the uncommon grace of God that we've been shown in Christ, kind of brings us to the end of ourselves. Maybe a question for us this morning uh, is, how should people approach their work in a, will, work that's, a world that's filled with wickedness and oppression and envy? And I told you that there were three responses. And, you know, there are a number of, of commentators that have observed that the three responses all have to do with our hands. And maybe there's something to this. And maybe this is because, well, in that day and in that culture, most of the work was done with their hands. Yes, with their minds. Even carpenters have to envision what they're seeing, but then they're mostly working with their hands. But most work was manual work in those days. And so most commentators look at this and say, like, there's this hand thing going on, and it's probably because most of that work was work done with hands. And so there's three responses. They all involve hands, but I'm not going to talk about it in that way. Um, I'm going to say it like this. The first one is in Verse 5, where it says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. There's three responses. One of them is the folding of the hands, and I'm going to say it this way. That it, the, the, the first response is that we run from our work. That we just fold our hands and we run from our work. Folded hands are a sign that we don't want to work. In the Bible, folded hands are a sign that we don't want to work. I'll share a proverb with you in a moment. But in the midst of our culture right now, like, this is actually a thing, right? Like, this is, this is a thing, and they're calling it the great resignation. And, and maybe you've seen a news, you know, story on it, or you've read a blog post or an article on it, but over 47 million Americans left their job in, by the end of 2021, and 4 million Americans leave their job every month in 2022. 
and 40% of the employees at your work right now are thinking about leaving their job within the next three to six months. So, you know the one place, incidentally, that people are not leaving their jobs? <laughs> it's the federal government. <laughs> 0.7%. <laughs> Why would you leave the tyrannical system that's over everything? 0.7%. Anyway, a little levity this morning. But 40% of your people at your work, they want to leave. The great resignation. Look, folded hands is a sign that we are acting like fools because this is not the way that life works. Right? Proverbs chapter six says it this way. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You know, this great resignation has worked out great for my kids. You know, they both have full-time jobs before they even graduated college. It's great. A lot of people don't want to work. By God's grace, my family wants to work. This is a principle in life, a folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Running from our work will cause us to cannibalize ourselves. The teacher says, eats his own flesh. The idea is we cannot survive this way. And we definitely can't thrive this way. You cannot thrive working as little as possible. It's not the way God designed us. But there's a second response. It's in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. The first response is that we can run from our work. The second response is we can run too hard in our work. It's two hands that are open. Two handfuls of toil. If folded hands are a sign that we want to run from our work, that we don't want to work, two cupped hands are a sign that we want too much from our work. Again, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Two cupped hands. This is the American way, right? It's the two cupped hands. We want, we want more. You ever notice, like, if you had a big bag of candy, and when Halloween comes in a couple of weeks, you'll have the bag. Of, if you have the bag of candy, and, 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 you know, you're not smart and just put it in the bowl, you know, you're, you're gonna, your kids are going to come, and they're going to open up the, the, the thing, or kids going to go like this with their shirt, or they're going to go like this because they just want more. And isn't it interesting that the author of Ecclesiastes thousands of years ago understands the posture of our, our heart and, and the posture of our body and how that's connected, and these same sort of mannerisms have been happening for thousands of years, just, just, just like this. There's a third response. It's also in verse 6. The preferred response. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. The last response is that we can rejoice in our work. We, can't, we don't need to run from our work, and we don't need to run too hard into our work, always overworking just to have more, just two handfuls, but we can rejoice in our work. And he's already said this in verse 22 where he said, so I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. He's already told us that. For it is his lot who can bring him to see what will be after him. 
If folded hands are a sign that we don't want to work, and two cupped hands are a sign that we want too much from our work, one hand, a handful, is a sign that we're content in our work. We're content with the work we have, and we're content with what comes from the work that we have, the work that God's invited us into. And the work that God is inviting you into is the work that you have. This is counterintuitive, I know. We all come with two cupped hands. <laughs> but the teacher tells us that the better approach is that we just, we just have one hand out and we enjoy that the work we have that God's invited us into, God's inviting us into work, and that may take different forms, but it's just one cupped hand, one day at a time, give us this day our daily bread, and we just are grateful and content with the work that we have. One hand at a time. Proverbs says it this way, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure <laughs> and trouble with it. I think in today's vernacular, it's more money, more problems. Is that how it goes? <laughs> Something like that? Some of you are like, I'd like to try. I'd like to try. There's one more response. It's not in this passage, but it's in our minds. It's in our hearts because for most of us, we're Christians. We've been filled with the Spirit of God, and we know there's a different way. We know there's an even better way. And so there's a third response that's it's not true about this passage in the sense of our work under the sun, S-U-N, but it is true of our work, as we've said, under the sun, S-O-N. And that's the fourth response is that we can think redemptively in our work. We can think redemptively in our work. I mean, maybe you heard the teacher's initial response about how we could work in a world filled with wickedness and oppression and envy and you thought, is that all there is? When you, when you heard him say, so there's nothing better for a man that he should rejoice in his work, and you heard that line, for that is his lot, for who knows what's going to come after him. And you thought to yourself, that is my lot? That my lot is just to rejoice in my work, just to, just like, okay, I'm going to use my personality and my giftedness, and I'm going to try to help some other people, and, and I, I get to provide for my family, and maybe I get to give a little bit of a way, but like, is my work part of anything bigger than that? And outside of the life that we have in Christ, the answer, I believe, is no, mostly no. Yes, God can redeem the lives of, and, and the work of all kinds of people to, to move toward his ends, but, but you would be right in thinking that there's something that's beyond this, there's something that's bigger than it. There's a bigger work that we can do. That leads us to the work that Jesus has done for us. We all know there's more work to be done. There's, there's something bigger we can be part of in terms of our work because we know the truth of the gospel. We know the storyline of God. We know that in the beginning, God created us, and he put us in the garden to tend it and to keep it, to work it. God created us to work, and that's a good thing, and God gave us good work to do, and we weren't content in that work. Could you believe it? Well, I can believe it because that's the way it is now. Well, like our, our, our parents thought that one handful, oh, it was a big one, <laughs> that God had given them was not enough. Like God had provided everything perfect for them, and they're just like this. There's got to be more. There's got to be something outside of what God's provided for us. So they sinned against God. They disobeyed him. They disbelieved him. They dethroned him, Tim Keller says. It was the, the, the de-godding of God. They wanted to be gods of their own life. I can work more. I can work harder. I can provide more. I can provide better. I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone else. I can accomplish what I want. I can earn what I want. I can build what I want. And that's what we've been trying to do, build our lives on our own. 
And the author of Ecclesiastes is seeing that that's emptiness, and I think we all know it. God certainly knows it. And so if you're not yet a Christian, this is what the Bible teaches, that God was not content to allow us just to keep living in a world that was filled with wickedness and oppression and envy because of sin, because of our sin. Like our sin affects not only our lives, but the lives of everyone else and the lives of the systems and structures and the lives of the governments. Who designs them? We do. So the Bible teaches that God wasn't content to leave us in that place, but he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a a perfectly sinless life before God, a life that we could never live on our own, by ourselves. This is what Christians believe. You know, Jesus did work. I mean, like, like actual manual work. Jesus, his dad was a carpenter, and likely he worked with his dad as a carpenter. Jesus worked, but Jesus did a different kind of work, a, a bigger kind of work, as he did his work. <laughs> he lived a life that's sinless before God. No wickedness, no oppression, no evil, no sin of any kind. And Jesus lived that life on our behalf. If we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, the Son of God who's come to save us from our sin, like that life that Jesus lived is attributed to us. That's what Christians believe. That Jesus lived the life that we could not live, that he died the death that we should have died, that he went to the cross and he took the punishment of God, the justice of God was put on Jesus on the cross for all of our sin, including the wickedness and the oppression and the envy and all of the evil that we have ever done, that, that Jesus took the, the penalty for all of that sin. God is just. God has to judge that sin because he's not only loving, he's just. And if he's loving, he has to be just, and he was. His justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And when we place our faith and our hope and trust of Jesus, in Jesus, I said, is the Son of God who came to save us from our sin, like, that, that's not coming to us anymore. God already placed his justice and his wrath on Jesus for our sin. Now we are forgiven for our sin, and now we are free to live our lives, all of our lives, including our work life, in a radically different way. Because we're forgiven people, and we're free to get back to God's design for our work. We're no longer bound to just do our work in wickedness and envy and evil and oppression and schemes and climbing the corporate ladder and using people for traction. Like, we don't have to do that anymore. Praise God. (laughs) That's tiring and useless and vain, as the author says. As we end our time in Scripture this morning, um, I'm going to turn us to Colossians chapter 3, where where Paul just gives us a a quick glimpse of the way this works. And it's going to be quick this morning. I just want us to read it and... If you're an employee, this would, this would sort of be the part that, that, that pertains to you when he says, bond servants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters. In that culture, there were people that served, um, they served essentially as slaves because they couldn't afford to repay their debts. And they would get to the end when their debt was repaid, and their master for some of them would have been so gracious that they would just decide, you know what, I just want to keep working for you, if that's okay. If this arrangement works out, like, I want to voluntarily now work for you for the rest of my life because... Well, because you've been a good master and because I've been able to serve you well. This is like a job for me now. I want to keep it. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not to men. Now, I'm not just working for that guy that I owe a debt to, but I'm working unto God. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Like God will pay back wicked employees and employers one day, but in this day, you work as you're working unto God and not to any person. So praise God, whatever our job is, whatever our work is, we can work, we can go into it knowing that, that there's a different way that we can approach our work now. We're working unto God, not unto people. And if you're an employer, like if you're the boss, <laughs> if you've got people under you that you employ or you oversee or whatever the word might be, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Like you have, you have a CFO that's in heaven that maybe you have a board of directors, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're overseeing, is this good? You're overseeing everything that you do, right? You have a master in heaven. Like you report to someone. It's bigger than the person that ultimately you report to. And all of your work and the way that you do it justly and fairly has more than temporal, it has eternal implications. And the good news at the end of this is that when Jesus returns, he's actually going to put us back to work. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? Like we're going to be doing things. Like we're going to have jobs, we're going to be working, we're going to be tending and keeping, and like we're going to do it well and perfectly and joyfully, and it's going to be the way it was always meant to be. I mean, that's connected to the, the good news this morning. And if you're new with us, we always share a good news statement at the end of our time together. We believe Jesus is only, he's altogether good, and we want to leave you with good news, <laughs> especially as we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I believe it's this, that we can rejoice in our work and we can think redemptively about our work because of the work that Jesus has done for us. And I hope that encourages you. I hope that's good news for you this morning. And good news for you tomorrow as you go back to work. Would you bow your head? Would you bow your heart with me? As your heads and your um, hearts are bowed, um, in this passage, there's this idea of the hands, the folded hands, the two cupped hands, and the one cupped hand. And I just have this conviction that much of the time that the posture of our body reflects the posture of our heart. And so I want to ask you just to respond in a brief prayer exercise this morning. And I just want to ask you, as your hearts and your heads are bowed, it must be really helpful to be respectful to the people around you. I would just encourage you if if you're able and if you're willing, that you would just hold out your hands the way that you believe largely characterizes the way that you are approaching your work today. Maybe for some of you, your hands are folded because in all truth, you just kind of don't want to do it. You don't want to do it so much. The work that God's giving you, you feel like it's too much. You're like, just fold my hands. Maybe for some of you, your hands would be, both would be open. You'd have two cupped hands in front of you because the reality is that's the way that you've been approaching your work. And I just want to ask you to, to tell him 
that. If your hands are folded, confess it to him. If your hands are cupped together in front of you, tell him and confess it to him. For some of you, you're going to be holding out one cupped hand because truthfully, that's where you are. And praise God for that this morning. And I, I want to ask you to praise God for that this morning. And to confess to him that you know it's only his grace that puts you in that place where you're holding one hand cupped open. As you've taken a moment just to confess these things to him or tell these things to him, I want to ask you just to wherever you're at, just hold one hand open and pray that God would give you the grace to trust him for the handful that he's provided, to thank him for the handful that he's provided, to tell them that you believe that he'll provide it in the days ahead. Tell him also that you want to use what he provides for a work that's bigger than the work that you're going to do tomorrow. That it's part of the work that he's done, and he's going to use your work in the work of the gospel in his kingdom. Tell him that you want to be used by him in that way. That you want your life to be built on his life, on his purposes, on his kingdom.